you're listening to Let's Talk Trees, a podcast brought to you by C4E Craft with me, Anggi Cahyaning Tias. We're back with series of special episodes on Integrated Pest Management or IPM. And on this episode, me and C4E Craft scientist Brad Harrison will co-host a discussion on the overuse of pesticides and integrated pest management as an alternative solution. Hi, Red. Hello there. I'm Red Harrison. I'm a scientist with C4E Craft. And uh, we have been uh, conducting a project on managing fallout armyworm using uh, agroecological approaches for the past four years. And I'm going to be your co-host here. Thank you. Now, going on to our guest, we have Paul Jepson, a professor of environmental and molecular toxicology at Oregon State University. He has a vast knowledge on pesticides application and ecological risk management. Hello, Paul. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Paul Jepson. I'm talking to you from Oregon in the United States at the moment. I've been working on fall army worm for several years with USAID, uh, the FAO to a degree, and some other um, international agencies. And I've visited Africa and Asia and been involved in pesticide selection management and, and risk reduction. So it's really great to be talking with you today. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. And next, we have Buyung Hadi from Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, whose expertise in on plant production and protection. Hi, Buyung. How are you? Yeah, hey, doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, again, my name is Buyung Hadi. I'm an agricultural officer at FAO based in Rome. I coordinate the Secretariat for the Global Action for Farm Rural Control, which is FAO's platform uh, to sort of give an umbrella to everybody's efforts uh, to mitigate uh, the impact of this pest with activities in Africa, the Nina region, as well as Asia. Sounds like a very important work to do. Thank you for uh, joining us again. Okay, so uh, Rhett, before we go to our question and answer with our guests, I would like to ask you one thing to introduce to us and to our listeners, what is a foam army worm actually and what harm does it bring to the farmer? Yeah, so fall armyworm is a, is a pest of uh, mostly of cereals, although it eats a huge variety of, of plants. And it was native to the Americas, but recently uh, colonized uh, Africa and then spread all the way through to Asia. And it ferocious pest of maize in particular, but other cereals. And so it's, uh, you know, it causes very recognizable damage to leaves. And it arrived in, uh, in West Africa in about 2016 and spread, as I say, very quickly from there so that it had reached East Asia by uh, 2018. But it is um, also, it's a, it's a caterpillar. It's called, a, it's called an army worm, but it's not a worm. It's a caterpillar, uh, Spodoptera frugipera. And it's uh, it also attacked by a very wide diversity of uh, natural enemies, including um, several hundred uh, parasitoids and, and and other predators and so forth. Uh, at least it's in its in its uh, native range, and it's increasingly being attacked by many uh, natural enemies in its in invaded range as well. Okay, thank you, Red. And now, without further ado, we should just go on to our discussion i will ask the first question to paul uh, because we're talking about the use of pesticides and the fall army warm so my first question is uh, it, about using pesticides it's like uh, literally a toxic relationship right 
So can you elaborate yeah. on us, the dangers of pesticides, Paul? Yeah. And I'll try and make this specific to fall army worm, because if we, we realize it's a pest that invaded from the Americas into Africa at some point a few years ago, and that pest species had had a history of treatment with modern synthetic pesticides over many decades in South America as well as North America. And so the populations that have entered Africa and now spread to Asia are somewhat resistant to the uh, most commonly used pesticides. Now, it so happens also that many of those materials were rather toxic to humans and the environment. And we have a combination of pesticides that are not terribly effective being used against pests by people that are, don't have a history of um, using pesticides in maize management. And um, they often do not have access to protective clothing. That's an absolute requirement. It's on the label, even in the pesticides sold in Africa and Asia, at least some of them. And so we have an issue of lack of effectiveness combined with the potential for toxicity to people, the environment and domesticated animals, including those in surface waters and, and fisheries, as well as, um, for example, chickens and goats. So it's a, it's a potent combination. But just to end my answer, I should mention that of the 800 to 900 pesticides that are widely sold, about two to 300 of them pose what would be termed unacceptable risks. And about 100 of them, about one-eighth or one-ninth of the pesticides that are sold, uh, pose risks that exceed their potential benefits. And we really do not wish to see those in the marketplace, but many of them, unfortunately, are the materials that have been used against fall armyworm. So that's why we have a particular situation with fall armyworm of access to materials that we know are causing significant harm. Right. But is there evidence of some of these, um, you know, these dangers being borne out? I mean, are we seeing increased, uh, uh, you know, toxicological problems within populations and this kind of thing? Well, that's a great question. I'll start off by saying that evidence is hard to come by, and often we find it sometime after the incidents have occurred. It is inevitable that if someone is using, for example, the organophosphate pesticide Profenophos, which is widely available in Southern Africa, for example, that if they're using it without protective clothing, that some health effects will occur. The models that are used are definitive and clear, and we understand that if you are personally exposed, your nervous system will be subject to various uh, insults from this material. Uh, so we don't have any doubt. When it comes to finding the data, for example, it often requires very detailed work um, collecting from hospitals on, for example, mortality and morbidity, as it's called, associated with people that have been exposed to excess amounts of the chemical. But myself and a colleague, Katie Murray, Katie Murray and a Malawian colleague, Mikta Keola, in Malawi a couple of years ago, conducted a survey where the farmers we were talking with reported typical symptoms associated with Profenophos exposure, including burning of the skin and nervous agitation and sickness and sweating associated with organophosphate exposure. So we have no doubt about this. When it comes to domesticated animal mortalities, 
and um, effects and wildlife effects. Wildlife effects often go undocumented, but again, they are an inevitable consequence of large-scale use of these materials. And um, uh, But farmers that we've worked with in West Africa, for example, in uh, Benin and um, uh, Senegal and Mali, um, have reported many uh, domesticated animal kills from providing animals with forage that have been treated with... Uh, uh, from foliage that's been treated with these compounds. So we know this is occurring, but there isn't a wide scale approach to aggregating all the information and presenting it back to the authorities that ought to be taking notice of this. True to that, I mean, Kabi uh, conducted a study in some of the countries in, in Western and Southern Africa. And they also, just like what all already mentioned from, from Malawi, they collected three types of data. The first one is, uh, you know, what pesticides are being used for fulanworm and indeed phenophosphate, the sulfan, uh, are being used in these countries. Uh, they also collected data that not, well, in fact, low percentage of farmers are, 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 are wearing uh, necessary protective uh, equipments. And indeed, there are reports of uh, uh, acute toxicity, uh, just just like what, uh, what Paul uh, has said. Uh, apart from all of that, uh, they also found out that you know, highly hazardous pesticides, so pesticides that fall under WHO toxicity 1B, for example, uh, that are being used for fallout stuff like dichlorophos, monocrotophos, metamidophos. So, so these are, as, as Paul said, no doubt this 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 will have an impact. So, so we understand that using these very toxic uh, pesticides is certainly dangerous and, and also often ineffective. So if you're a farmer or if you're a, you know, a government officer who's uh, hoping to, to help farmers by perhaps promoting some pesticide use, I mean, where do you go for the correct information as to what pesticides you should be using and, and, and you know, how to use them safely? There has been some very good work conducted in Malawi by uh, government uh, researchers that have tested various uh, materials sponsored by the World Bank. And they've made uh, very careful and um, kind of quite comprehensive efforts to distribute that information to the extension network, for example, of government extension agents in the nearly 40 districts uh, for extension that are in, in Malawi, if just to give one country example. Um, I think the trouble is that, uh, you know, there are millions of farmers in, in Malawi and the extension workers do not necessarily have access to a large proportion of those because they lack um, uh, resources for fuel even for their motorbikes to go out into the countryside to talk directly to farmers. And so the trickle down, as it were, process of getting important information directly to a farmer that needs to know this and then also information into the supply chain so that uh, reasonably priced materials that are lower risk could be made available. It is slow and it is very inefficient. And so um, I think the knowledge of the materials is, is out there, even though it may not be as widely published as it should be. And USAID, for example, working with CIMIT and other agencies, including ICRAF, has produced a, a, a pest management guide for Africa and now for Asia that has very detailed information about pesticides within it. I think the critical information that gets that gets through to the supply chain, to extension workers, to farmers, 
that's where we've been lacking um, a, a process. That's that's a very interesting point, Paul, because uh, also with FAO, we 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 we, we do try to produce uh, all of this information uh, also in local languages in response of uh, uh, the introduction of alarm worm and to push it through the, uh, the, the the extension system. But as you say, the extension system is sometimes under-resourced uh, on, on its own. And and even though the, 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 the information is out there, a lot of the dissemination work is project-based. Yeah. And, and and as such, it, it you know, it, it comes in bursts, it comes and go. <laughs> that that, yeah. that can be pushed out. And... We can't let the podcast go by without, of course, uh, reminding everybody, this is one of the most controversial topics there is that's rife with misinformation on both sides in terms of the effectiveness of approaches that actually have very little efficacy on the biological side as well as the synthetic pesticide side and um, the heavy marketing of materials that are very inexpensive, easy to apply, and um, but, uh, but also extremely toxic. And I just wanted to add one other thing, that if farmers are not trained in good application practices, how to use a modern sprayer to target the pest and achieve the right amount of dosing on the foliage, um, you really do not get effective control. And it's a really unfortunate feedback loop that some of these more toxic materials are very persistent and extremely toxic for a long period on the foliage. And, it's, and so even if you don't apply them efficiency, efficiently, you can get some small level of effectiveness. And so that tends to feed into this perception that the more toxic the chemical is, the more effective it's going to be, which is really not the case. But it's something we have to fight in a way to get that message across. That's very important to hear. Thank you, Paul. And just to uh, for our listeners who have yet to be familiar with fall army warm because uh, we jump right in into like how pesticides use is not effective or in sometimes like overuse in fall army warm case. I just want to know for this case, does it need like really strong pesticides? Like how bad it is for farmers? I think some of the biopesticides even I would call strong in that they're extremely effective against fall armyworm, but not toxic to what are called non-target organisms, including people, pollinators, natural enemies, and other environmental um, uh, non-targets, as it were. So I, I try and avoid the term strength because we really are talking about the benefit of the pesticide in terms of killing the pest and avoiding the costs, which are all the other unintended consequences we see. But it is absolutely the case because of the history of use of traditional synthetic pesticides against this pest that um, less widely used, more narrow spectrum, as we say, pesticides like Bacillus thuringiensis, uh, for example, nuclear polyhedrosis virus, azadirectin or neem, which is widely used, all come up very, very high on the list of chemicals that are most effective against this pest. Perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll hit the question in a, in a slightly different angle, Angie. So why, why is pesticide even a problem in, in, in alarm wrong management? So, so this, this is a pest that, that I think Paul already mentioned is uh, endemic in the Americas for a long, long time. But it, first, it was first uh, reported 
from uh, West Africa in 2016. And of course, you know, as I said, it's relatively new. It's a perfect storm because, first of all, the pressure from, from the natural enemies are not very high yet. And farmers, a lot of farmers are probably panicking when, when they first saw the, the symptoms of hormone feeding, which understandably can, can look pretty dramatic. So that perhaps sort of drives the use of pesticides in many of the newly invaded range of pests, both in Africa as well as, as, well as in Asia. Would you, would you say that that's, a, that's an okay assessment, uh, Paul, of, of why we are seeing all this, yeah. this brief? So I work in Oregon, which is north of California, and I have to say in the Western United States, where new invasive pests appear, there's an explosion of chemical use, often with more toxic uh, materials that have a history of effectiveness, uh, but also of uh, adverse impacts. And so if it, it's something that happens here and all around the world, and if you like, it's a human response to something that's unexpected and frightening. So I think Boyan's absolutely right. And uh, we've seen this in talking to villagers throughout uh, Africa and in Asia as well. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, because you both mentioned there the natural enemies and the the, the, the fact that the uh, the more specific or the, some of the botanicals are not so uh, yeah. impact, you know, have such an impact on natural enemies. And why is that, why is that important in pest control? Well, one thing is that the unseen uh, but really uh, important benefit of natural enemies happens at night or um, when populations are very low and many farmers uh, do not routinely see natural enemies active in the crop or do not necessarily know that the insects they're seeing are beneficial rather than potentially harmful. And so uh, suppression by natural enemies of pests is is uh, occurs globally and is incredibly important. The natural enemies are very mobile because they're searching for the pest, and the pest is somewhat sedentary, especially when it's, for example, deep in the in the maize leaf worlds. And so the natural enemy, unfortunately, is more exposed to pesticide deposits than the pest is. And so even materials that might be more toxic to the pest than to the natural enemy, and this includes, um, uh, for example, organophosphate and carbamate insecticides like profenophos that we've referred to, a monocrotophos and methamidophos, et cetera, um, uh, the uh, natural enemies simply get more exposed, pick up more chemical, and are more affected than the pests are. So this is a dangerous situation to be encountering. And what we really seek with use of pesticides in IPM programs, because they are part of IPM, they're not separate to it. IPM is not an alternative to pesticides. Pesticides can, of course, be used if they're affordable, effective, and they do not have adverse impacts on the, your health or in the environment. And so sustaining natural enemies, as well as using certain chemicals when the yield of the crop and perhaps your economics as a family and your even your food supply is going to be effective may be important in some circumstances and so getting that balance right is very important and it's perfectly possible to protect natural enemies by using materials that are not toxic to them as well as using materials that are toxic to the pest so it's very complicated and requires a great deal of precision in research, and it takes a long time to develop a clear understanding of this. 
And I wouldn't say we failed, but this information has still really to properly come to light in the hands of farmers that are making those decisions on a daily basis. Right. In a, in a case of a, an alien species, uh, a newly introduced pest like, like palmworm, right? The, 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 the accepted wisdom also is, is that, well, it it's probably comes without the natural enemy, right? So it, it, it's coming into a, an enemy-free space and, and it will yeah. allow it to, 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 to outbreak. What's unique about palmworm, though, is you know, FAO has worked with various uh, partners. I know other uh, uh, organizations have done the same to sort of trying to take stock. Okay, are the indigenous natural enemies, the natural enemies that used to be feeding on other Spodoptera uh, species, are they now utilizing uh, uh, for our more? And indeed, we are seeing this. Huh? Over uh, 35 uh, indigenous parasitoid species in Asia, about 30 indigenous parasitoid species in Africa. Uh, in some of these parts, the, the, the ambient level of parasitism. So without having to augment the natural animal uh, populations, the ambient level of parasitism is at as high as 50%. So, so this is good news, huh? yeah. which again fit into exactly what Paul said. We need to, we need to protect this, this natural uh, regulation mechanism that is, that is already uh, uh, happening out there. So one of the bits of research I did um, a little while ago was to investigate what happens to natural enemies when pesticides are used on a large scale in many fields across a, a, an area. And we found that some of the natural enemies disappeared uh, in some fields for up to a year because all the fields surrounded them were also treated. And so the natural enemies had to reinvade that area of agriculture from outside. And one of the issues with maize and fall armyworm and pesticide impacts is that maize crops are grown pretty much throughout Africa. And you've got this enormous scale of production, a large proportion of which will have been treated. I have deep concerns about how how what the survival rates and population levels of natural enemies that are required to suppress these pests right and then and, and in a way then what you're saying is the wave of an increase in in, in pesticide use in response to phalaromal introduction is probably making the ecosystem even more vulnerable yes. for, for for the next incoming invasive no yeah, and that's the story of pest management. And a lot of my work in the Pacific Northwest is helping farmers manage that exact problem now in one of the most modern pesticide marketplaces in the world, where farmers have access to multiple education and support events each year and have access to local agronomists and consultants. So when you take away many of those things, but farmers are presented with the same problems, uh, the con the outcome of that seems rather inevitable and uh, very unfortunate. Very important point. Uh, thank you, Paul and Buyu. Uh, just to tie up together what we have discussed, uh, I really like your point, Paul, about IPM is not an alternative to pesticides. So my question is, maybe I'll go first to Buyu. Like, where does IPM sit in this situation? Just to frame our earlier discussion, maybe you can have an overview of that. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, um, uh, IPM is, is, is also not well, something new. Right? It's, it's an accepted uh, uh, framework of sustainable uh, way to manage pests. 
perhaps an easy way to to sort of characterize it is it's a framework that recognizes um, that there are many tactics to to to, to manage this, uh, all the way from you know the use of resistant variety, uh, perhaps the modification of the of the landscape, uh, the immediate la immediate landscape surrounding a field, or perhaps using a, a cropping diversification, uh, like push-pull, for example, in, in the case of a lot of more, um, to the use of, you know, conserving natural enemies, as we already talked about, by not using insecticide when it's not necessary, uh, and also augmenting the, 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 the number of natural enemies out there, perhaps by mass-releasing the arthropod uh, parasitoids uh, or using commercial biopesticides. That, that's an example of uh, biological control. All the way to, you know, scouting, checking whether the intervention economic threshold is, is already crossed. And if that it is crossed, then perhaps using certain insecticides uh, in a safe and selective manner. Now, there are two, there are, in my opinion, there are two important things here. The first one is integration, so integrated pest management, right? Yeah. Which shows that, right, all of these tactics can work together in a, in a way that sort of help each other. Um, and for it to help each other, we need prioritization of the tactics. One, one cannot, uh, like for example, the IPM is usually shown as a pyramid, huh? With, with, with the base being stuff like what I mentioned before, resistant variety, conservation of natural enemies. And then, and then you go up uh, as, as, the, as the pressure from the pest mounts, right? Okay, if, if, the, if the pest pressure keep on mounting, then perhaps we do mass releases of natural enemies. It keeps on mounting. Well, let's probably use some, bio, some biopesticides while all the time scouting for, for the pest. As the very last resort, we can probably use insecticide. Now, we cannot stand that pyramid upside down. Pyramid crumbles upside down, which means we cannot say, all right, we're using pesticide, but we're going to start at the top. There need to be a prioritization of the, of the different tactics so that, so that they can support each other in a way that is sustainable for, for the environment as well as for uh, human that's that's Thanks. that's a long answer, eh? Yeah, Thank it's, you. Okay, but, it, but it's great. But I would I would like to finish perhaps because we haven't got much time left on just asking both of you. Maybe Paul, you can ask more, answer more on the pesticides, and Bill Jung on the IPM. How you know what's the government's role here? How can they contribute to you know improving the situation that we now face? Well, one is uh, finding mechanisms to support uh, government-sponsored research programs and university-based research programs because uh, we discovered in South Southern Africa and East Africa a lack of resource for testing different options and demonstrating to farmers um, what their options might be. I should add to on the IPM question, with, with regard to decision-making, uh, the decision not to spray a pesticide is just as important as the decision to actually spray a pesticide. We sometimes forget that. And farmers need to have the understanding of the contribution that other factors make, such as, for example, just good nutrition, good planting strategy, planting timing, very simple things that can minimize the impact of, of this pest. 
And so um, the governments can do that. They're then uh, extension services, again, uh, in general, lack resources to reach um, farmers. The extension officers themselves tend to be extremely well informed and they're seeking information the whole time. And so giving them access to farmers is a very critical thing and using modern media to do that and just enabling that process of communication. And so I do feel there's always a latent potential there that we do not meet because we put all of the focus on things that we find quite attractive and high priority and exciting to do. Whereas the basics such as ensuring that communications can take place when information can be transferred that's readily known, um, we give that a lower priority because it doesn't seem as exciting or important. So I feel that's my message. I'll, I'll add to that. I mean, I, I agree totally. So so the government can, can help by strengthening the, the public-funded research side, uh, either through the national uh, institutions or academia, as well as, as the extension system as, as a way to strengthen uh, capacity at the, at the farmer level. Um, a simple example, Paul mentioned about the decision-making uh, sort of guide of, of whether one needs to spray or not to spray. Uh, the, 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 the classical way to, to, to call this is, is an economic threshold, right? And, and, and there is a formal way to sort of do this. We did a, a, a quick review of the papers that are published on, on fall armyworm since 2016 in the newly inflated range and come up with a couple couple hundred uh, papers uh, that's been out there. And out of this couple hundred papers, I think one or two are on economic thresholds in the in the in the newly inflated range. So so this this type of information we all know it's necessary. It's not out there. Uh, which which means there's 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 a very strong gap that that, that needs to be bridged there. One last point that I would uh, add is also the regulatory side of things. In many places, the options, the tactics, the IPM tactics, such as biopesticides, uh, either commercial ones or, or um, augmentative uh, uh, biological control, uh, they need they need the public support, either in terms of mass production or in creating the regulatory framework that allows for biopesticide to be registered. Uh, there, is, there is a certain weakness in a few countries uh, in this, in which the pesticide registrars don't necessarily understand the difference between biopesticides versus uh, uh, synthetic uh, chemical pesticides, and, and this hinder uh, registration of, of uh, safer uh, biopesticides in the market. So that, that can be another another part for the government uh, to, to contribute in this whole in this whole uh, scheme. I very much agree. Thank you. Uh, Red, do you have any comments to sum up our discussion? No, I, I'd just like to say thank you to uh, Bo Jung for, for this very interesting uh, discussion that we've had. I think it's a very important topic uh, within the whole management of, of Fall Army One. Um, and, uh, you know, your, your views have been, uh, uh, you know, are very important to us. So thank you very much for, for contributing. 
So thank you again for being in the podcast, Paul and Buyung. And to our listeners, don't forget to follow C4E Craft social media for more info about our upcoming episodes. And that's it for our today's episode. Thank you and see you again. Bye.